Voters in Wisconsin upended Republican control of the state Supreme Court for the first time in 15 years. The race was also the most expensive judicial race in American history. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, April 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, despite Chinese protests, Taiwan's president is meeting House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in Los Angeles today. Traffic deaths spiked in the U.S. in 2020 and have remained elevated since. Some blame reduced deterrence for unsafe drivers as police are stopping fewer motorists. There's not enforcement out there. They're hesitant to write tickets. And we're seeing the results of that. Also, the card game so simple it has no rules and is designed for people with dementia and their loved ones. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Former Vice President Mike Pence says he will not appeal a ruling that directs him to testify in the Justice Department's investigation into the January 6th insurrection. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports the exact timing of Pence's grand jury testimony is still unclear. Special counsel Jack Smith wants to hear from Mike Pence as part of his investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Last month, Chief Judge Jeb Boesberg of the U.S. District Court in Washington turned away former President Donald Trump's arguments about executive privilege, but the chief judge put up some boundaries about the possible Pence testimony connected to Pence's role in presiding over the Senate on January 6, 2021. A spokesman now says Pence will not appeal that ruling clearing the way for a grand jury to hear from him in the coming weeks. Investigators want to know more about Pence's contacts with Trump in the days leading up to the siege on the U.S. Capitol. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The national average for a gallon of gasoline in the U.S. is rising. NPR's Camila Dominowski reports gas prices inched up by about two cents today. Concerns about a recession push oil prices down, so the banking turmoil last month made oil cheaper. That was cutting into the budgets of major oil-producing countries, most significantly Saudi Arabia. So over the weekend, Saudi Arabia and a few other countries announced a surprise production cut. It was designed to push prices up, and it promptly did. The benchmark price jumped by five bucks. Crude prices drive gasoline prices, so the move was widely expected to raise prices at the pump. The impact is usually delayed, meaning drivers should expect more price increases in the days ahead. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. Twitter has labeled NPR as being state-affiliated media. It's the same label it applies to official propaganda outlets. NPR says the claim is both false and disturbing. NPR's Bill Chappell has more. NPR is asking Twitter to remove the new tag, which calls NPR, quote, state-affiliated media. Twitter uses that label to identify official mouthpieces in countries such as Russia and China. NPR is an independent nonprofit, and while federal money is vital to the public media system, NPR gets less than 1% of its annual budget on average from federal sources. Twitter hasn't offered an explanation for the move. In response, NPR CEO John Lansing called the new label disturbing, saying a vibrant free press is essential to our democracy. Earlier this week, Twitter's policies stated explicitly that the state media label wasn't appropriate for outlets like NPR and the BBC, but that policy has now been altered to remove NPR's name. Bill Chappell, NPR News. This is NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston City Councilor Kenzie Balk will be the next head of the Boston Housing Authority. The agency is responsible for tens of thousands of affordable housing units in the city. Mayor Michelle Wu says Balk will transition into the role next month, and that will trigger a special election for Balk's city council seat, which includes Mission Hill, Fenway, and the Back Bay. Current Housing Authority Administrator Kate Bennett is stepping down. A driving school owner involved in a driver's license bribery scheme at the Red Registry of Motor Vehicles in Brockton is facing up to 20 years in prison. Today, Estafo Semedo pleaded guilty to fraud. He admitted he paid a road test driver uh, examiner at the registry to falsely attest that license applicants had passed a road test. He'll be sentenced in August. And Massachusetts is at the head of the class on one metric of education. Today, the College Board reported that Massachusetts has the highest percentage of high school seniors who've had a score of three or higher on an advanced placement exam. A three indicates a student is able to complete introductory college-level work in a subject area. Nearly one-third of Bay State seniors hit that mark. 42 degrees still in the Boston area. Showers off and on through the night tonight. Overnight lows right about where they are now, close to 40 degrees. Then for tomorrow, overcast once again. Could have showers off and on. Should reach about four, uh, 66 degrees, that is. Then some sunshine for Friday. Highs in the mid-50s. 42 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR, taking two minutes now before we hear our top stories of the day, including the results of the Wisconsin Wisconsin Supreme Court election. Uh, I'm, this is Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks, just to tell you that we are rounding the end of this fund drive. $19,000 is what we have left to raise, and we are so grateful for everybody who has called. This is the time, if you haven't, to call now, just before we go back to the news. On this, the last day of our fundraiser, we are in the last hours of the fundraiser, and we thankfully have a match on the table, Anthony. Yeah, that's right. Um, this fundraiser is going to end at 7 o'clock no matter what. We're pretty sure we can get that $19,000, but here's a great incentive uh, to urge you to make that call right now if you haven't given already. Uh, members of the Morrow Society are giving us a dollar-for-dollar uh, dollar match, so whatever you contribute will go twice as far, and the match is available until we meet our goal, so that means it's a limited uh, amount of time. Now is the time to call because we really want to end this fundraiser. Uh, We want to end in a strong position. We're very grateful for the response we've had so far. Give us a call, um, 800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Just looking at the rundown for All Things Considered today, we're talking about uh, uh, veterans affairs. We're talking about the politics in Wisconsin. We're talking about a uh, uh, North Carolina Democrat who has switched over to the GOP. We're talking about policing and then some lighter stories having to do with a pet hospital in El Salvador and some other um, uh, stories of that sort coming up as well. It's really the whole spectrum of life that you get from WBUR. So we're hoping because you listen, you will pay for it pay for all that you hear on WBUR, what you read at WBUR.org, the podcasts that you might listen to, the the uh, events you might go to at City Space, the newscast that you might read, whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that it means to you, put a dollar value on it right now while we have this match, dollar for dollar match on the table. And while we are coming to the end of this fundraiser, don't let it end without you. So once again, if you have pledged, thank you, thank you. If you haven't, one 800 909 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum presenting Guwanda, United Nations, on view now. Plan your visit at pem.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Today, a lot more people outside the state of Wisconsin are learning the name Janet Protosewitz. Yesterday, she won the most expensive judicial race in American history. It was for an open seat on Wisconsin's Supreme Court. Well, that result will give liberal justices a four to three majority on a court that is likely to hear challenges to a state abortion ban and to legislative district maps drawn by Republicans. The NPR Politics Podcast talked this through today. Here are correspondents Susan Davis, Kelsey Snell, and you'll hear first Tamara Keith. There was money pouring in from way outside of the state of Wisconsin. And the candidate who was aligned with the Democratic Party and Democratic values said openly that she was pro-choice, that she supported abortion rights, uh, that she would consider revisiting the state's congressional district lines and state district lines that have been highly controversial. That candidate, Janet Protasewicz, won, and not by a little bit. She won by more than 10 points, defeating Daniel Kelly, who was more aligned with Republicans, campaigned at GOP headquarters, and had connections to uh, former President Trump's uh, efforts to overturn the election results in 2020. We need to just stick with abortion as an issue in this race, I think, in particular, because it seemed to be such a central focus of the race. I read a fascinating data point that Protosewitz spent a third of her ad dollars focusing on the issue of abortion. You know, in 2022, it resonated with voters in a way that I think some voters weren't even anticipating, clearly remains an issue. I mean, Tam, are Democrats seeing this race as abortion is an issue that they should continue to campaign on and campaign on hard going into 2024? Let me just tell you, as I was in Wisconsin right before the election, I went and interviewed voters. Now, admittedly, I was interviewing voters at a student union at the University of Wisconsin. So, you know, reliably Democratic. Reliably, (laughs) yes. Turnout was quite high in reliably Democratic parts of the state. That's how you win. And what I heard again and again and again was that abortion was a very important motivating issue. And it was particularly motivating in this race because after the Dobbs decision, something called the 1849 law kicked in, which is a ban on abortion in the state. And that is inevitably going to come before the state Supreme Court. And it effectively outlaws abortion in the state right now. Yes. And that means that abortion is an incredibly live issue in the state of Wisconsin. And the reality is it's an incredibly live issue in many states in the United States. And even if people say their top issue is uh, the economy or they're not happy about the economy, they're not happy about this or that, the thing that they, it seems, care about most if they support abortion rights, the thing that makes them go to the polls is abortion. Sue, I want to ask you. Last fall, there was also a Senate race. It pitted um, a more progressive Democrat named Mandela Barnes against the incumbent Ron Johnson, who's a very conservative Republican. And Ron Johnson won. He won by about one point. It was a close race, but he won. And now, not even a full year later, you have Janet Protasewicz 
winning by more than 10 points. So what what gives? I think structurally there's a couple things. It's always harder to beat an incumbent than it is to win an open seat race, which is what Tuesday's race was. I think in a state like Wisconsin, you know, there's always probably going to be a race element to some of these uh, elections. Mandela Barnes was a black man. He ran uh, very hard to the left. Uh, and I think that that could have been a factor as well. So it's hard to say. One thing that I'm also curious about Wisconsin is it's got a lot of working class voters, right? Like this is a, a type of voter that had been in the Democratic Party for a long time, have increasingly been moving closer to the Donald Trump wing of the party, but also a group of voters that supports abortion rights, especially blue collar women. And if you're talking about a swing voter on an issue, there's a lot of blue collar women who do not want abortion bans. And in a state like Wisconsin, that could be a really potent political force. And I think that's something we're probably going to hear a lot more about going into 2024. Tam, I also wonder if you think that you see this race as possibly a new front in sort of the war of judicial elections. The Democratic Party hadn't really focused on judicial races with the same level of intensity that Republicans had, certainly in the pre-Dobbs era. And it seems like we might be entering a new chapter here for the Democratic Party. Now, not every state has judicial races. Uh, Many uh, justices in many states are appointed, but there are states with elected judges. And uh, Wisconsin is one of them. And in the past, candidates that were aligned with Democrats for judicial positions in the state of Wisconsin didn't really like uh, shout that from the rooftops. They, you know, they just ran as like, I'm going to be a a carefully considered judge. And then something changed. Well, not just in Wisconsin. That's generally how judicial races have gone. In this case, it's very clear that the veil was off. (laughs) Like everybody knew exactly where Janet Protasiewicz stood when they went to vote for her. And in a way, that means people are able to make more informed decisions. Uh, But also it 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 does sort of change, I think, the way people view the judiciary, though. The fact is, from the Supreme Court on down, I think the way people view the judiciary has changed a lot in the last 20 to 25 years. That was NPR's Tamara Keith, Kelsey Snell, and Susan Davis. And for more, check out the NPR Politics Podcast. In the early years of the war in Afghanistan, the U.S. military relied heavily on an airbase in Uzbekistan that was known as K-2. K-2 is now known for another reason, toxic exposure. Veterans who served there have reported rare diseases or cancers, and many have died. Now they're demanding answers from the Pentagon, as NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. For 20 years now, Kim Brooks has been fighting a war she never signed up for. My husband, Lieutenant Colonel Timothy Brooks, was a 1989 West Point graduate. They married the next year and had four children by the time 9-11 happened. Tim deployed to a base called Kharshikhanabad, K-2, in Uzbekistan, near the Afghan border. Troops there mentioned irritating dust and strange chemicals seeping up through the ground. Tim came home, and soon after he started hearing rumors about uranium and other toxins. A year later, he had a seizure at a command ceremony as he was preparing to deploy to Iraq. At the hospital, the news wasn't good. Brain cancer. The doctor tells us that Tim has a stage 3 astrocytoma, and it's aggressive, and he has probably 11 months max to live. You know, we make it out to the parking lot, and Tim collapses on the ground in tears, sobbing. So he's six foot five, he's on the ground, and he's sobbing. Tim beat the prediction by a month. He died a year later, still on active duty with the Army. Of their four children, one went to West Point and later Iraq. 
Another is now a lawyer at the Yale Veterans Legal Services Clinic, which helped file a lawsuit this week. I'm the director of government affairs and a board member for the Stronghold Freedom Foundation. I would like to thank Senator Blumenthal for your uh, continued support and being here today. I would also like to thank the uh, CVLC for hosting us today and helping us in our journey. Steve Nelson with the Stronghold Freedom Foundation spoke at a press conference announcing the suit brought because the Pentagon has not answered a freedom of information request, a FOIA. This FOIA litigation seeks to force the government to provide a list of the toxins it discovered and documented at K2. This information is being inexplicably and shamefully withheld. The Pentagon referred NPR's query to the Department of Justice, which declined to comment on why this information isn't being released. 15,000 vets served at K2. Hundreds of them say they're sick, but they can't even tell doctors what to treat them for until they know what was contaminating the base. When I was there, some dudes came off a C-17 wearing moon suits, carrying Geiger counters, and I was in running shorts and a T-shirt. Mark Jackson served four combat tours. He spoke to me last week, and then he rushed himself to the emergency room when the sepsis in one of his elbows burst. He's got severe osteoporosis, anemia, and his thyroid failed and was removed. I have had surgery four times in the past six months, and I consider myself lucky because it's not cancer. Jackson's service was recognized with a Bronze Star Medal pinned on by Lloyd Austin, then a general, now Secretary of Defense. Jackson now wants Secretary Austin to recognize him again and all of the other K-2 veterans by releasing the information they need to survive. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. A worrier. That is how former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern described herself in a farewell speech today. Some might say the worst possible character trait to have as a politician, or the best, depending on how you cut it. Her message, you can be anxious, sensitive, and kind, and be an effective leader. And not only can you be here, you can lead just like me. Ardern stepped down as prime minister earlier this year, but remained a member of parliament. Now she says goodbye to the chamber and to politics. I've always believed this to be a place where you can make a difference. I leave knowing that to be true. Ardern joined the New Zealand House of Representatives 15 years ago when she was just 28 years old. At the time, she was its youngest member. In today's speech, she touted her wins and losses over the years, like the crises she oversaw, a domestic terror attack, a volcanic eruption, a pandemic. And she made a point to talk about one issue in particular. Climate change is a crisis. It is upon us. And so one of the very few things I will ask of this House on my departure is that you please take the politics out of climate change. Ardern also touched on her struggle to conceive a child. I'd not long experienced a failed IVF round when I became leader of the Labour Party. I thought that I'd found myself on a path that meant I wouldn't be a mother. Rather than process that, I campaigned to become Prime Minister. (laughs) A rather good distraction as far as they go. Imagine my surprise when a couple of months later I discovered I was pregnant. Ardern made history when she brought baby Neve to the UN General Assembly three months after birth. So it was only fitting that Neve, who is now four years old, was in the public galleries watching and listening to her mom's farewell to politics. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, why the number of traffic deaths is so high in the United States. On Wall Street, the Dow rose a quarter of a percent today. The S&P lost the same amount, a quarter of a percent. NASDAQ also gave up ground, but more. It fell over one percent. That's the third loss for the NASDAQ in three days. The forecast is coming up. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Damp weather into the evening and overnight tonight. Lows about 40 degrees, pretty close to that right now. Tomorrow, it should be cloudy and temperatures should reach the mid-60s, should retreat to the mid-50s on Friday. Sun should reappear for mostly sunny skies. We could have sunshine for the weekend as well. 42 degrees now in Boston at 421. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries. Brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. From CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Threats to democracy make an informed public critical to America's future. WBUR will always be free thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Give monthly to give real journalism a strong future. Here's how. By calling right now, if you haven't as yet in this fun drive, 1-800-909-9287 or going online to WBUR.org. We are rounding the last corner in this fun drive. It is now... Uh, let's see, about uh, two and a half, three and a half. I'm not doing the math. Two and a half. Hours. Two, two and, and a half, half hours left to go. Oh, well, Arithmetic, three and a half. Lisa, <laughs> you can the do num- it. The numbers on the clock keep moving. <laughs> so we're hoping that by four, seven o'clock comes around tonight that you will please make your donation to WBUR. We would so appreciate it. And right now, especially... There's a time for you to uh, magnify the impact of your money because we have a dollar-for-dollar match on the table. That's right. Um, the uh, members of uh, our Morrow Society are offering you a dollar-for-dollar match. So your contribution goes twice as far. The match is available until we meet our goal. That is, until we raise the final $19,000 of this fundraiser, which we hope to do in the next two and a half hours or so with your help. But take advantage of this match because if you can do... a month, uh, it turns into $20 a month. If you can do $50 a month, $100 a month, you understand how it works. Anything you can do right now will be doubled by uh, the generous members of our Morrow Society. So give us a call right now. Help us finish this fundraiser in good shape. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. You know, it's not often that people uh, turn to public radio and say, you know, that was just by accident. I think I'll switch to a different station. Usually when people come to WBUR. It's by recommendation, by reputation, and they don't switch back. Um, And that's one of the things that we're proud of. But we hope that as you might make that transition to WBUR from any other station that you listen to, that you will realize the way it works here. Our model is that we rely on you for the vast majority of our operating budget. You in aggregate help us make our um, uh, budget every single year. And when we do, we can be even more ambitious in providing you the coverage of everything from the 
Trump indictment to the elections going on in Chicago and Wisconsin um, to all the other stories, even lighter stories that are in the news. We can do that because of your funds. Without your funds, we're not doing it. So please help us now with whatever you can afford. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And Lisa, speaking of all the uh, news stories that we cover, there's such an interesting story that seems pertinent to talk about right now because it's about funding, it's about independence, it's about NPR's identity. Twitter added a state-affiliated media tag to NPR's main account on Tuesday. Of course, we're not state-affiliated. We get a, a small percentage of our funds from federal sources. We apply for them. The point here is, is we're not controlled by commercial interests. We're not uh, controlled by uh, state interests. We're um, accountable to you. We're independent. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org is how you can ensure that we retain that independence. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Experience springtime like nowhere else. Come see the bright orange nasturtiums in full bloom in Isabella's courtyard. Gardnermuseum.org. And Exclusion U, a film about the controversy over Ivy League admissions and endowments. World premiere in Cambridge, April 17th. Registration at exclusionletteru.com. American roads have become more dangerous since the pandemic. The traffic fatality rate jumped during the lockdowns, and even now, with traffic mostly back to normal, people are still dying at a rate about 18% higher than four years ago. As NPR's Martin Costi reports, one potential cause may be recent changes in policing. Seattle resident Carol Cummings is convinced that traffic is more dangerous lately. More speeding on city streets, more rolling through stops, more cars with headlights out. She's a regular driver, but she's also a retired police officer, and she thinks she knows why this is happening. I can't think of the last time that I have seen a police car with a motorist pulled over on the side of the road that was not involved in something like an accident. So she requested the data about traffic stops. And indeed, it turns out that Seattle police have been handing out a lot fewer citations. Compared to 2019, last year's total was down 86%. And Seattle's police chief knows this. Some officers don't feel like they have enough adequate time to do the traffic enforcement. Chief Adrian Diaz says his department lost hundreds of officers after the protests in 2020. And those who are left need to spend more of their shifts on urgent calls. But some of this is also departmental policy. Last year, the chief instructed his officers not to stop cars for certain low-level violations, expired license tabs, or objects hanging from rearview mirrors. There was a feeling that if there was a way to reduce these violations, that you would reduce potential disparities in stops, and you would also eliminate unnecessary contacts. That's contacts between police and citizens. Low-level stops have been restricted in some other cities, too, the result of a nationwide campaign in recent years following deadly outcomes in high-profile traffic stops of black men such as Dante Wright. Susan Nemhard is a researcher at the Urban Institute, where she's written about the argument for fewer traffic stops. For people of color, and specifically black people, they can actually be one of the most dangerous interactions that they have, and that's from experiences of not only physical harm when something terrible happens, like a shooting or a murder or something like that, but also emotional harm and mental anxiety and stress. 
It's important to emphasize here that Nemhart and others are talking about low-level offenses, say a broken taillight or unbuckled seatbelt. They say when the police stop someone for things like that, it doesn't make the road safer. But Jonathan Adkins isn't so sure. We know people who are black and brown have been disproportionately stopped, but perhaps we've gone too far on that other side. Adkins runs the Governor's Highway Safety Association. He says enforcement should be equitable, but it should also be visible and expected. Why do many of us drive dangerously on the roads? Because we think we can get away with it. And guess what? We probably can right now in many places in the country. There's not enforcement out there. They're hesitant to write tickets. And we're seeing the results of that. In policing, there's a theory that people are most deterred from breaking the law, not by the severity of the potential punishment, but by the likelihood of getting caught. That's why speeds go down around those marked speed cameras. By the same token, if cops aren't seen pulling cars over for the small stuff, say expired license tabs, people start to think that they'll get away with more serious offenses, such as running red lights. A lot of cops think this is what's happening on American roads right now. But Jacob Denny doesn't buy it. He's with SPUR, an advocacy group in San Francisco, where they're also pushing to restrict police stops for non-moving violations. I generally have never been convinced by the theory that individual officers on the road provokes the kind of surety of being caught that reduces deviant or criminal behavior. Because even when you put a ton of resources into traffic enforcement and you have a lot of officers active and out on the scene, it's not enough to cover everywhere, right? Back in Seattle, retired cop Carol Cummings acknowledges that the police can't be everywhere. That's true, but having done 37 years of police work and having stopped an awful lot of reckless drivers, you may not stop them all, but you will have made an impact on the person that you've pulled over and you have either cited or warned. And Cummings says for her personally, what keeps her driving safely isn't so much the fear of getting caught. It's all those years she spent being called to the scene of car wrecks and what she saw there. Martin Costi, NPR News, Seattle. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's Hybrid Graduate Certificate in Executive Coaching. Boost your career or start a new one. Apply now for fall, williamjames.edu. And Volante Farms in Needham, celebrating spring with their Crescent Ridge ice cream stand, now open year round. Seasonal hours at volantefarms.com. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met with Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen today, calling that country a great friend of America. More than a dozen Democratic and Republican lawmakers joined McCarthy for talks in California. The House leader said he will continue to find ways for America and Taiwan to work together to promote peace and stability in Asia. China, meanwhile, had threatened a response if the meeting took place. The Department of Justice announced they've reached a tentative settlement with the families of the victims in the 2007 
2017 mass shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Once finalized, the government will pay out $144.5 million to the families. NPR's Deepa Shivram has more. The shooting that took place inside a church more than five years ago killed more than two dozen people. It remains the deadliest mass shooting in the state of Texas. The gunman, who was once in the Air Force, had a history of domestic violence, but that information was never entered in the background check system, so the families of the victims sued the federal government. A district judge originally said the government owed $230 million, but the Department of Justice appealed that decision in January. Now, after years of legal back and forth, there is finally a tentative settlement. It marks the third time the government has paid out a settlement in the aftermath of a mass shooting. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. Oil prices moved slightly lower today, despite an announcement several days ago that Saudi Arabia and several other oil-producing countries will reduce their production levels. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says it's not yet clear when those reductions might take place. Things are trading still around $80, and I think... Uh, remember, these were voluntary cuts that uh, that OPEC Plus signed on to, um, and it remains to be seen uh, who's actually going to cut what and when. On Wall Street, meanwhile, stocks were mixed. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 80 points. The Nasdaq closed down 129 points. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Three former executives of Bill Ricca-based bioscience company Magellan Diagnostics have been charged with conspiracy, mail fraud, and other violations in federal court in Boston. As WBR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, they're accused of misleading patients and officials about their devices that test for the content of lead in blood. The devices, which were used in blood lead tests in the U.S. between 2013 and 2017, gave inaccurately low test results. The U.S. attorney alleges the Magellan executives hid the malfunction, and tens of thousands of kids and other patients received the wrong results before devices were recalled. Philip Landrigan, a physician and public health expert at Boston College, says he worries about those who received a false sense of security from defective devices. Because nobody realized that the child was being exposed to lead, no interventions were taken. That's the real concern here. A lawyer for one of the executives says the charges were misguided. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Two of the three defendants entered not guilty pleas today. A coalition of doctors and medical experts wants the state to keep the mask mandate in place for health facilities, including hospitals. The state plans to lift the mask requirement next month. The governor's office says the decision aligns with Centers for Disease Control guidance and federal requirements based on transmission rates. But the Massachusetts Coalition for Health Equity calls the CDC guidelines dangerous, unethical, and based on flawed data. Dr. Lara Germanis is a primary care physician and instructor at Harvard Medical School. She says COVID-19 continues to pose a serious threat to everyone, especially the elderly and those with chronic medical conditions. And it is absolutely unconscionable and irresponsible for us to be infecting people in the spaces where they're seeking care. She also says lifting the mask mandate will exacerbate hospital staffing shortages. Massachusetts Attorney General is calling on the Biden administration to increase access to birth control coverage. Andrea Campbell has joined more than 20 other attorneys general to make the request. Campbell says the White House should limit rules that allow employers to deny birth control coverage in health insurance plans for moral reasons. 
in the forecast. April shower is off and on this afternoon and overnight tonight, about 40 degrees overnight. And then tomorrow should climb to the mid-60s, the off chance of showers. For Friday, sunshine moves back in, winds pick up a little bit cooler as temperatures top out in the mid-50s. As of now, it looks like we should have a sunny weekend coming up. This is 90.9 WBUR. By the way, if the clouds clear enough tonight, you should be able to see April's full moon. It's called a pink moon, not because of its color. It's that the pink buds of the flocks and other flowers begin showing right around now. It's also known as the Paschal full moon because it falls right before Easter Sunday. This is WBUR. It's 436. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global communities make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Here in California, the president of Taiwan sat down with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today. It's a meeting that the Chinese government had tried to keep from happening, warning of retaliation. But it went ahead, and other members of Congress attended too. NPR's John Ruich is in Simi Valley, just north of Los Angeles, where the meeting took place, and he joins us now. Hi, John. Hey there. I understand this meeting happened at the uh, Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. What was said? Well, they met for about two hours, and uh, McCarthy and Tsai came out and made some brief statements afterwards. McCarthy said he believed that the bond between Taiwan and the U.S. is stronger than ever in his lifetime. And remember, U.S. and Taiwan have no formal diplomatic relations. Beijing thinks Taiwan is a part of China. McCarthy was pretty cautious with his language, though. Tsai, for her part, you know, she said she was grateful for the meeting and for U.S. help in protecting Taiwan's way of life. It's a democracy. You know, she said uh, that this meeting reassures the people of Taiwan that they're not isolated that they're not alone. And she reiterated Taiwan's commitment to defending the, quote, peaceful status quo. And that implies, of course, the situation with China. Uh, But here's what she said after that. To preserve peace, we must be strong. I would like to add that we're stronger when we are together. Yeah, it's a controversial meeting. There were uh, dueling protesters, supporters of Taiwan and China here at the library. There was even a prop plane flying circles overhead with a banner that said, One China, Taiwan is a part of China. Uh, and from Tsai Ing-wen's perspective, uh, what was the point of this trip? Yeah, look, a big part of the trip actually was uh, her visit to Nicaragua and Belize, uh, uh, which was sandwiched between stopovers in the U.S. These are two of Taiwan's few remaining diplomatic allies. Taiwan just lost Honduras to Beijing, so it's important for her to be seen as keeping these allies on sides. Um, But she killed two birds with one stone. Stops in the U.S. and meetings here were meant to showcase that to some extent, you know, the strength of the relationship with with, with the United States, which, of course, is complicated. Uh, It's not uncommon for the leader of Taiwan to meet members of the U.S. Congress. There's another congressional delegation heading to Taiwan in a few days. But last August, when Nancy Pelosi, who was then Speaker of the House, went to Taiwan, it raised tensions with Beijing to uncomfortable levels. McCarthy had been talking about visiting Taiwan. This meeting here in California kind of heads that off. And analysts say it really reflects uh, caution on Tsai's part, you know, particularly going into election season in Taiwan. Uh, Do we have a sense of how China might react to this meeting today, John? 
China has been flagging all week that it, it that, that it's unhappy and it's it's threatened to retaliate. Uh, you know, there's been some military activity already uh, around and near Taiwan. Uh, there was joint patrol inspection of some kind in the northern part of the Taiwan Strait. Uh, when Nancy Pelosi visited, there were unprecedented military drills around encircling Taiwan. They shot missiles over Taiwan. They cut dialogue with the United States. You know, uh, China analysts say that kind of thing is possible again. I mean, if you're sitting in Beijing, you know, some think that you, to a certain extent, you can look at what what happened in the wake of those exercises uh, as, you know, as being successful. You know, Kevin McCarthy's not going to Taiwan, at least for now. Here's Bonnie Glazer, director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund in D.C. The Chinese should be relieved that McCarthy is not going to Taiwan. But there there could be a perception in Beijing that they have to up the ante and they have to, if they want to be taken seriously by the United States and by Taiwan, that they can't look soft. Just about 10 seconds left, John. What uh, What is next? The ball's in Beijing's court. It really depends on what they think of this meeting, how they you know, process these remarks by McCarthy and Tsai. That's NPR's John Ruich in Southern California. Thanks. You're welcome. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. I'm Scott Simon. Your monthly contribution to WBUR says that you value journalism that keeps you informed. You value reporting that's rooted in your community. You value independent journalism as the foundation of our democracy. More than what your contribution says about you is what it can do. Your monthly contribution to WBUR makes the station's independent journalism possible. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we hope you do that right now because there's something going on that uh, we're very happy about. Uh, You have a chance to help put us over the line on this fund drive. We are $3,000 away from meeting the goal. The fundraiser ends at 7 o'clock, so while every single contribution counts, we hope you'll make the one right now so we'll be even closer to making our final goal in just the next few hours. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks. Yeah, Lisa, this is pretty exciting, and it's a great testament to the kind of support we have out there. So thank you if you have already given in this past week. If you haven't, uh, be the person who puts us over the top. We're just $3,000 away, so this is gonna we're going to reach our, our goal really quickly. And as Lisa said, we will continue to fundraise until seven o'clock. That will be extra. And in this in this economy, extra is good. So uh, continue to support us right up uh, through seven o'clock. But it, until we meet, meet that goal, we've got this dollar for dollar match from members of our Morrow Society. So that means if you go right now and call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org, anything that you can pledge per month, $5, $10, $25 or more is going to be doubled. So, um, you know, take advantage of that great offer and help us, uh, help put us over the top. This is an exciting moment. We're really happy about this. I'm really happy about it. And uh, for those people who just tune into WBUR for the first time and don't yet get our funding model, please make a pledge right now because that way you are part of our effort to keep journalism independent, to keep uh, fact-based journalism alive and strong 
And that's what WBUR is all about. All you have to do is listen to our output every day on the air. Go to WBUR.org and you can see that for yourself. It is radio, uh, a radio enterprise, a media enterprise that is certainly worth funding. So think of what it means to you and how much you can give. And especially if you've never given before, please do it right now, whatever it happens to be. If you can make it a $10 a month uh, investment, it would be wonderful because you will make that worth $20 a month now because we have a dollar for a dollar match going on the table. If you can do $50 a month, it would become $100 a month for us. So please make the call right now as we near the end of this fund drive, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We often talk about uh, WBUR and NPR being sources of independent journalism. They are, we are, and you're the reason that we are. We, we're not beholden to commercial interests because you represent our largest share of funding. And think about all the reasons you listen. This week, uh, we've been covering this extraordinary story, first time in history that a former president has been indicted. Huge story, but but we also cover the arts. We cover culture, conversations about books, about music. We're asking you to put, uh, uh, think about what that means to you. Put a price on it. Give us a call, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org as we move very close to reaching our goal this evening. Yeah, when you hear what's on the air, uh, Anthony was talking about um, about all the various stories that we cover, including, of course, the Trump indictment. We have a story coming up on a completely different level of interest. This is a card game for people with dementia that they can play with their family members. Um, you help make stories like this possible. Contributions in the past have done it. That's why we're here right now. Your contributions right now are investment in the future and the future of independent, fact-based local journalism. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We're working on the last $3,000 left to raise in this fund drive. Please continue to do us proud and call in your pledge, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you so much. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at CambridgeNaturals.com. Since war began, Ukraine has asked for modern weapons from the West. Some have arrived, but often forces have to make do with Soviet-era equipment. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley met a helicopter brigade that remains an inspirational force in Ukraine's war effort, despite its old aircraft. As dawn breaks in eastern Ukraine, three Soviet-era helicopters sit shrouded in fog on a potholed tarmac at an undisclosed location in the middle of black-plowed fields. A crew does last-minute checks on launcher pods loaded with dozens of slim gray rockets. There are flares stacked in racks behind. Vitaly, who's not allowed to give his last name, is spokesman for the 18th Army Aviation Brigade that flies these aging choppers. Every mission is uh, very dangerous, but we don't have another choice. We must do our work because we want to live in the free country and want to live like a free people. These MI-8 and MI-24 helicopters were used by the Soviet Army in Afghanistan. Today, they'll attack Russian forces along the Eastern Front in Donbass. 
Vitali says the pilots get around the lack of modern anti-aircraft early warning systems by flying low to avoid Russian radar. The pilots have many tricks to compensate for the lack of technology, he says, though he can't disclose them. They made uh, a lot of uh, missions that uh, some pilots from abroad just uh, tell that it's impossible, but our pilots do it. These helicopter units played a role in keeping Kyiv's Hostomel airfield from being taken in the beginning of the war, and they succeeded in flying undetected through Russian-occupied territory to deliver ammunition and evacuate the wounded from Mariupol's Azovstal steel plant last spring. We have uh, seven flies, uh, 16 helicopters go to Mariupol, uh, but we lost only, only three. Vitali won't provide more details on casualties. After a three-hour delay to let the fog lift, visibility is essential, the pilots climb into their cockpits. The copters are painted with blue and yellow bug eyes and look like giant insects taking to the air. The sun is now glinting off the windshield. The weather is good. They're about to take off to go help in the Battle of Bakhmut. In an hour, they reappear over the horizon. Now we can talk to the pilots. Oh, you always feel like it's maybe not happiness, but some kind of satisfaction. You feel that like, yes, today is the day when I did something to bring the victory, to make it closer to us. That's Roman, 36. He's the same age as his helicopter. He says they're using unguided rockets too, which means they have to get very close to their targets. We do our best using the old uh, munition, but we need new one because uh, Russians use the same copters and they have more. Roman dreams of flying a U.S.-made Apache or a Black Hawk. After takeoff. 46-year-old pilot Vitali says he's afraid before each mission, but after takeoff, adrenaline and determination take over. He says you normally only realize how close you've come to getting shot down by a Russian fighter jet when the mission is over. GoPro footage from the sortie shows the rockets firing as the copter swoops in low over the ground. Vitali was flying UN peacekeeping missions in Africa and was set to retire when the invasion began. His cousin was killed by the Russians in Bakhmut this month. I just hate them, he says. They came here with a sword, and they will die here by the sword. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, in Donbass. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For people with dementia, social interactions can be vital in slowing the disease's progression. But as a person's condition worsens, finding enjoyable things to do together can be difficult. Two Vermont women created a new card game to help. Vermont Public's Nina Keck has more. The game is called Hodier, which is Latin for this day. We really wanted a name that captured the idea of living in the moment. That's Emily Rinkema. She and Deb Emerson have both seen loved ones struggle with dementia. My father-in-law had Alzheimer's, and once he was no longer able to leave the facility he was in, we really struggled to find something to do with him that was meaningful and engaging. Family photo albums worked really well. He didn't remember 
who he was looking at or any of the stories of the photos, but he would just stare at them and we would talk about what he was seeing. And it was the like just these amazing bright moments. The bright moments that Emily Rinkema remembers sharing with her father often involved playing cards until his Parkinson's disease got in the way. And as he progressed through dementia, cards became more and more challenging. And a big part of that was the rules. Rinkema and Emerson began talking about ways to make a card game without rules, using photographs. It took several prototypes, but they eventually came up with a square-shaped deck of cards, 23 pairs, each with a colorful photograph of a bird, from hawks and ospreys to songbirds and sparrows. Hodier is not the first game targeted to people with cognitive problems, but it may be one of the most freeform. We wanted to have something that was, I think, was really flexible. Emerson encourages people to invent their own games with the cards, sort them, or just talk about which of the birds you've seen before. The goal is connecting, something experts say is key. Being socially isolated, that's like one of the worst things possible for the brain. John Steele-Taylor is a neurologist at the University of Vermont Medical Center. Social interactions, especially if they have a, a leisurely component or a, a physical uh, activity component, that's, that's ultimately the best way to exercise the brain. Renee Reiner's father and grandfather died of Alzheimer's disease. She co-owned several bookstores in Vermont and was excited to be among the first to sell the game. She brought a deck of Hodier cards to an old friend who has dementia, a woman Reiner used to sing with in a choir. And we come upon a red-winged blackbird. And she looks at the bird and she looks me in the eye and she says, Blackbird, there's a song. I said, yes, there is a song. And I sang along to her for a while and, you know, and she was able to hung along. And it was just a, a charming, endearing moment. Hodier cards cost $25 online. Emily Rinkema and Deb Emerson say sales have been strong enough that a second set with photos of classic cars will be available soon. For NPR News, I'm Nina Keck in Chittenden, Vermont. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these sunken eyes and learn to see. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, April 6th to 16th, bostonballet.org. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. We have wonderful news. We have met the goal. It doesn't Yay. often happen early in the fund drive, but it has now. So we, you, you have helped put us over the top the last $3,000 in just the past few minutes. Anthony Brooks, this is fantastic news, and we really have all of our listeners to thank. Yeah, it's great news, and it's a great testament uh, to our listeners, especially in these uh, economic times that we're living in. This is why this fundraiser is so important at this moment. Uh, but we raised $660,000 since this fundraiser launched uh, last Wednesday. That's really important to keep us strong um, in the coming months. Um, now, <laughs> Here's the tricky part, Lisa. We reached our goal, and we still need you to call because uh, we're going to keep this fundraiser going until around 7 o'clock. You should that, say the match is over, though. The match the dollar for dollar is match. over. But at this point, it's extra money in the bank for us, which is always good, particular, particularly in this economy. So there's still time for you to make a difference, to make a contribution, and call 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. But to all those people who have already contributed and uh, helped us reach uh, this goal, thank you so much. It's kind of nice to think that we underestimated the actual amount of support that we might get. (laughs) So for those of you who have yet to make the phone call and intended to or still need convincing, please do it because we could sure use the padding. As Anthony said, in this kind of economy, um, the more that we can put away, the better. And it's not money that's going to take us all on a trip to Jamaica. It's money that we're going to use for the news and information, for the podcast, for the events at City Space, for the coverage that you get on air at 90.9 WBUR. So here's the number again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thanks to everybody who has helped us make this goal, and thanks to those of you who are still giving right now, as many of you are. We are so grateful for your support for WBUR. Yeah, it's a really good feeling um, because we're hearing directly from you. I mean, we've been appealing to you all week, making the case that, making the point, uh, stating the fact that you are our, our largest uh, share of funding. You provide the largest share of funding, which makes all the programming possible. So, you know, as a political reporter, I'll just come back to the big story this week. First time in history that a former president has been indicted. Uh, Lisa, I'm going to be hosting On Point on Friday. We're going to come back to the story and talk about what's the next step? What does it mean legally? And what does it mean politically uh, to have uh, an indicted former president as the Republican front runner running for president. I mean, it's just a mind-blowingly uh, and un- mind-blowing and unprecedented event in American history. We're all over this uh, story. It's hugely important. You make coverage of this kind of thing really important. So, I mean, uh, possible. So, give us a call one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven or wbur.org. It's important for me to be a WBUR member because it doesn't seem right that I would be getting all of this information, all of this news, and find joy in some of the other programs if I wasn't paying for it and I wasn't supporting it. It's a nice opportunity to participate in the programming and the ideas that the station promotes. I think we all get to say something with our money, even if we give modest amounts. With that money, we make something happen. Your modest monthly gift will make a meaningful difference. Give monthly at WBUR.org.
What it means to give monthly is to basically say, look, for right now at least, I would like to give $20 a month, $10 a month. And if your budget changes in the future, then you can certainly adjust that amount downward or upward. I think there are a lot of people who are already sustainers. And if you can right now use this time to add a few dollars more to your contribution, that's fantastic. If you can't, we totally understand. We are just so grateful for those people who are more than listeners, but contributing listeners. In this fund drive, you know where your money is going. Anthony was talking about how he'll be on point on on point on Friday talking about uh, what it means to have a former president who has been arrested and indicted. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, you're going to be hearing the story about Trump's possible legal defense strategies and many, many more stories as well, including one having to do with a snake on a plane. <laughs> um, so it's it's something unpredictable here on All Things Considered, just as the name That's suggests. That's it's All Things Considered. That's right. And so we are looking for your pledge to keep this kind of independent, interesting, edifying, sometimes amusing news coming your way. Once again, the phone number 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors. At garden centers nationwide, provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After a historic election Tuesday, a liberal judge will fill the vacancy on the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin. NPR's Tamara Keith reports her win will flip the balance of the state's highest court, which has been controlled by a conservative majority for 15 years. Abortion was on the ballot this week in Wisconsin. Not officially, but the winning judicial candidate, Janet Protasewicz, made her position in favor of abortion rights well known. And it was a particularly live issue for voters because an 1849 law banning abortion in Wisconsin was triggered last year after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. For Democrats nationally, this is a further confirmation that leaning into abortion rights, as many candidates did in the 2022 midterms, is motivating voters. Wisconsin will be a key battleground in the presidential election in 2024. Any election challenges or questions about voting laws would likely end up with the state Supreme Court, which now has a liberal majority. Tamara Keith, NPR News. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met today with Taiwan's president, becoming the most senior U.S. elected official to do so on U.S. soil since Washington established diplomatic relations with Beijing. 
The meeting taking place today at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California. The meeting deemed somewhat less risky than an actual trip to Taiwan, coming after McCarthy's predecessor, Nancy Pelosi, made the journey there last year. It comes as the U.S. and Taiwan continue to shore up ties amid increasingly aggressive calls by China to avoid escalating tensions over a breakaway Republic China claims as its own. The White House continues to criticize the decision made by OPEC nations to cut oil production. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports starting next month, Saudi Arabia and other major oil producers will cut more than one million barrels a day. The decision to slash oil production is likely to further strain ties with the United States, which has called on Saudi Arabia and other allies to increase production as it tries to bring prices down and put the squeeze on Russia's finances. White House spokesman John Kirby says the administration will closely monitor gas prices in the U.S. in the months ahead. We're going to continue to work with the producers and consumers to ensure that markets support economic growth and lower prices. We're going to continue to do what we have to do to to assist in, uh, in balancing supply and demand. Calling the decision to cut production an unconstructive act, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the move could hurt U.S. efforts to lower inflation. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Former Vice President Mike Pence will not appeal the judge's ruling ordering him to testify to a grand jury in the U.S. Justice Department's probe of the January 6th Capitol riot. That's according to a spokesman for Pence. Pence's testimony could emerge as a key moment in the special counsel investigation. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 80 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A former employee of the company that operates the MBTA's commuter rail is accused of stealing more than $8 million that was meant for track repairs and routine maintenance. John Pigsley of Beverly was indicted today on federal charges, including wire fraud and tax evasion. Prosecutors say he and a vendor bought vehicles and equipment, charged Keolis for the goods, but then kept the items for themselves. The vendor has agreed to plead guilty to wire fraud. Some police officers in Lowell are now wearing body cameras. The one-year pilot program launched today in the city. 30 officers are wearing the devices for now. The department plans to expand the program next year to include every officer in Lowell. And a Massachusetts lawmaker wants to legalize psychedelics in the state. Southwick Representative Nick Boldilga has filed a proposal to legalize substances such as psilocybin. That's the active drug in mushrooms. He says he was influenced by research that showed the mental health benefits of those drugs. In the forecast, look for some showers off and on tonight. Temperatures just about where they are now, close to 40 degrees. Tomorrow should be cloudy for the most part, damp, showers off and on, and a lot warmer, up around 66 tomorrow. Some sunshine for Friday, highs in the mid-50s. 43 degrees now in Boston at 505. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Anthony Brooks is with me. I'm Lisa Mullins right now. And Anthony, what did 3,700 listeners do? They uh, contributed more than $660,000, which was our goal for this past week. Uh, That is, they helped us uh, surpass our goal. Excellent. Yes, it's great news. And they did that by calling 1-800-909-9287. They also went to WBUR.org. That's where they made their contribution. And the point is, 
lots of modest contributions add up to something big. We should also say, Lisa, we got some really big contributions in the final minutes uh, before we reach this goal, which is very exciting. We'll, we'll probably talk about uh, that a little later. The point is this fundraiser is going to go on until 7, so everything we make between now and 7 o'clock is extra money in the bank for WBUR. That's good for us. That's good for you. So you still have a chance uh, to, con to, to make a contribution right now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or by going to WBUR.org. Yeah, we are so grateful to everyone who's called in to help <clears throat> us make this amount, this total amount in the fund drive. Uh, the fact is we can use every single dollar that we get, and that's why we're saying if you would like to help us pad our goal, we're never not in need. Do that. We're never <laughs> not in need, absolutely. <laughs> and, and what you give comes right back out to you in the form of the news that you're about to hear in one minute on WBUR. All the programs that you listen to 24-7, everything that you read at WBUR.org, every event at City Space, every podcast, uh, every bit of our newsletters, this all comes out of the contributions that you make, and you make up the largest percent of our operating budget. So if you didn't have a chance to give in the fund drive, you can do it right now, and we would be so grateful if you did. Again, the number is one 800 909 9287wbur.org. We got some nice responses from listeners. Someone said to us, I've laughed, I've cried, and sometimes just listened in silence in awe or shock, but always grateful for well-told stories. I love Thank that. you, WBUR, for wow. doing this so well. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, we love hearing from the listeners. So, a few minutes left, 1-800-909-9287 or wbur.org. Thank, Thank you. you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. With the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution, it's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. An absolutely record-breaking fight for a single seat on a state Supreme Court is over. For the first time in 15 years, liberals will have a majority on Wisconsin's highest court come August. That is when the newly elected justice, Janet Protosiewicz, will take the bench. Well, to break this down is Sean Johnson, political reporter for Wisconsin Public Radio. Hey, Sean. Hi, Mary Louise. Hey, so lay out the stakes for those of us uh, not in Wisconsin. What does this liberal swing on the court mean for your state? Well, I mean, you got a sense of it at the election night party for Janet Protosiewicz in Milwaukee, where the energy in the room was palpable. And while there is still work to be done, tonight we celebrate this historic victory that has obviously reignited hope in so many of us. <laughs> And I mean, her supporters were dancing on the stage with her last night to just get a sense of why it's a big deal for Democrats here that liberals now have a majority on the court. I think you have to look at the last time it happened. It was 15 years ago was the last time they had a, a majority on the court. Uh, George W. Bush was still president at the time. Hmm. So we tend to think about Wisconsin as this swing state where control pings back and forth between the two parties. But on the court, for 15 years, there's been a constant in Wisconsin. It's been a conservative majority, and that is no longer the case. Well, let's get into the issues because they are big ones that people tend to get fired up about. Abortion, um, redistricting in the state. What is next on those now that Protosiewicz is on the court or soon to be on the court? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, she'll take office August 1st, and I think you can be sure that there's going to be a challenge to the state's 1849 ban on abortion headed to the court. That ban took effect after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade here. So um, that case is already filed in a lower court right now. When it comes to redistricting, uh, you know, Janet Protasiewicz during the campaign said that the Republican-drawn legislative maps here that have helped Republicans hold big majorities in our legislature uh, and cement a conservative majority for, you know, more than a decade, she called those maps rigged. She said she'd like the court to take another look at them. And now that she's there, she's very likely going to get that chance. How are Republicans reacting to that? Well, the initial reaction last night from former state Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly, who was Protosiewicz's opponent, was raw, to put it mildly. It was very critical of Protosiewicz, especially for a concession speech. This was the most deeply deceitful, dishonorable, despicable campaign I have ever seen run for the courts. At the same time, Republicans did score a significant victory uh, yesterday, a special election in the state Senate that gave them a two-thirds majority in the Senate. And that could let them impeach and convict civil officers of the state, positions like governors, attorneys general, and judges. And briefly, Sean, what do we know about who turned out to vote? Well, we know that we broke turnout records here with about 1.8 million people turning out to vote. That topped the old record of 1.5 million. When I talked to Marquette University pollster Charles Franklin, he said it was also a noteworthy day in terms of the size of the Protestant victory, which was about 11 percentage points. It's a substantial win in terms of percentages. It's an astonishing win in terms of turnout. And you saw it, with that turnout, the Democratic counties growing their share right. of the vote. And you also saw Republican votes in the in the suburbs of Milwaukee sliding slowly to the left. All right. Thanks, you, Sean. Wisconsin Public Radio's Sean Johnson. Yesterday, Donald Trump became the first president, former or sitting, in American history to be charged with a crime. 34 felony charges, to be exact. And while a potential trial is still months away, if not more, Trump has already started defending himself in the court of public opinion. And this is where we are right now. I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and family. That was Trump speaking to a crowd of supporters back at his Florida estate hours after entering his not guilty plea in New York. But what might an actual legal defense look like in his case? We've called on Randall Eliason. He teaches law at George Washington University Law School and is a former assistant U.S. attorney for D.C. Welcome. Glad to be here. Was there anything in the documents that were released yesterday that made you think that the state might have a stronger case than a lot of people were expecting it to have before uh, the charges were unsealed? No. I think, if anything, the documents that we saw yesterday just raised more questions in my mind. Um, They aren't terribly specific on what the state's legal theories are what the underlying crime they think was being concealed. It it might be a federal campaign violation. It might be a state campaign violation. It might be state tax charges. We we just don't know yet. So there are a lot of questions that I think still need to be answered. Based on what we have seen, do we have any clues about how Donald Trump's legal team might try to mount uh, an effective defense? Sure, there'll be a couple of different things. I mean, putting aside the various legal questions, I think Factually, the case is going to come down to Michael Cohen's credibility. Uh, Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, who is expected to be the star witness in this case. Yes, that's right. 
Um, and, you know, he's a, he's a convicted felon. He's an admitted perjurer. And so the attack on him will be, look, he's admittedly lied repeatedly in the past. Why should you believe him now? And I expect another defense is going to be the level of Trump's own intent and knowledge here, because um, I expect one defense might be this was a scheme largely cooked up by Michael Cohen and others in the organization. And yes, he signed the checks when they put them in front of him, but he wasn't really down into the details about how these bookkeeping entries were going to be made, things like that that would support you know, his intent for these particular criminal charges. Does Trump's team have any potential legal ground for challenging the indictment itself? Yeah, I think we'll see a number of challenges to the indictment. Um, one would be if the underlying crime that the prosecutors are alleging was was being concealed or covered up here is a federal campaign violation, there'll be an argument that that's not a proper basis for a state prosecutor to turn their own state crime into a felony, but that only the federal government could bring that charge. Um, there's going to be arguments about whether there's a proof of intent to defraud here, uh, because these were purely internal documents. Most of these cases involve false writings that were submitted to some government agency or submitted to some other person, and that's how you prove intent to defraud. These were kept purely internal. So I think that's going to be a legal issue that gets that gets fought over as well. And they'll probably try to argue that, you know, the president is immune from this kind of suit, that a state prosecutor can't bring this kind of suit. Uh, and I expect they'll try to make some kind of motion that the district attorney should be disqualified, that he's biased or, you know, it's inappropriate for him to be bringing this case. And again, not that these will succeed, but they can definitely tie things up for months or longer. Well, as we know, uh, President Trump likes to speak out, and he has a lot to say about this case. He'd like to say about this case. He's also got a presidential campaign to run. How might his posturing on the public stage impact his lawyer's strategy to defend him, you think? Well, I think being Donald Trump's lawyer has always been a difficult job. I mean, any, any competent defense attorney would tell him to stop talking about this case and about the allegations and, you know, attacking the judge and attacking the prosecutor. None of that's helpful. And anything he says now is fair game for the prosecutors to use at trial. So I'm sure his lawyers would prefer that he not say anything about this case. Um, but that's not going to happen, right? And, and we've seen that he is going to continue commenting on it. I mean, he's done that for six plus years. But now the consequences are potentially much more severe because now he's not just under investigation, there are actual criminal charges pending. And if he continues you know, talking about the charges in public, he's almost certain to say something that's going to end up hurting his case. Randall Eliason teaches law at George Washington University Law School and is a former U.S. attorney for D.C. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. Air travel can be nerve-wracking, so spare a thought for South African pilot Rudolf Erasmus. He was piloting a small, private plane when he found a stowaway of the deadly and reptilian kind. Yeah! Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. Imagine your greatest fears. The ones that paralyze you. The ones that render you helpless. If the schlock horror movie Snakes on a Plane makes you nervous. Now imagine them all at once. Spare a thought for Rudolf Erasmus. I felt this little cold sensation um, underneath my, my shirt where my hip is situated. I don't really know how to say it correctly um, in English, but basically we've got your little love handles. A slithering stowaway. That's what the South African pilot discovered when he felt something cold brush up against his body on a flight to the South African town of Nauspreit this week. When he looked down, the pilot was surprised to see a highly venomous Cape Cobra under his seat. 
as I turned to my left and I looked down, I could see the head of the snake receding back underneath my seat. Um, at which point there was a moment of stunned silence, to be brutally honest. Erasmus decided to turn the plane around and head back to the closest airport with his four horrified passengers, plus the unwelcome guest. I then informed my passengers of what was going on, but everybody remained calm. A Cape Cobra bite can kill someone in under an hour. Was he scared? The deadpan pilot said his first thoughts were for his passengers. I was more afraid of what the snake might do. Luckily, it didn't strike anyone. Otherwise, that would have changed or complicated the whole situation. The incident has drawn comparisons to cult 2006 film Snakes on a Plane, in which an FBI agent played by actor Samuel L. Jackson lets loose an expletive-laden tirade when he discovers the plane he's on is full of venomous snakes. Erasmus said he'd seen the movie some time ago. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson's, uh, how you say it, that iconic scene in Snakes of a Plane of his famous saying, that is how I felt at some point. Erasmus has been praised by South African Civil Aviation Commissioner Poppy Corza, who told local media the pilot was a hero and saved all lives on board. Since landing, however, the snake has not been found. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Chaotic times for social media, but they remain popular nonetheless. That story is still to come on WBUR. On Wall Street, the Dow rose a quarter of a percent today. S&P lost the same amount, a quarter of a percent. The Nasdaq also gave up ground, but more. It fell over one percent, the third loss in three days. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30 this evening. It's now 5.20. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com slash events. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about making a modest contribution to create stories and conversations that make your world bigger. Hi, it's Robin Young. Give $10 or $15 a month an ongoing contribution, which will help sustain WBUR for everyone who listens. Please give now at WBUR.org. We want to thank everybody who has given to WBUR during this fundraiser. In the past hour, we actually made our goal thanks to the 3,700 people who called in during this fun drive. That was over $650,000. And so why are we still on the air and saying things like 1-800-909-9287 and WBUR.org? It's because in these times, if we can possibly sock away money in order to give you even stronger news, then that's what we're going to do. Because what you put into WBUR is exactly what you get from WBUR every time you turn on the radio, every time you go to WBUR.org. So thank you again so much for helping us make this goal. If uh, you have not had a chance to pledge, if you would like to, and we hope you will, right now is the time to do that. Yeah, I mean, this is great news. We're really happy. We're very grateful to our listeners. We were going to go to 7 o'clock no matter what, whether or not we made the goal. As Lisa said, we made the goal, but we're still going to push on to 7 o'clock because extra money in the bank always helps, particularly in these economic times. You know about the uncertainty of the economy. It hits all of us in different ways. It hits WBUR, too. So here's our CEO, Margaret Lowe. 
we have tens of thousands of supportive listeners, members, people who tell us that we're their lifeline, that even on the hardest news days, we remind them of their humanity. But the truth is, it's gotten harder and harder to find new members, and that scares us. I mean, it definitely keeps me up at night. Stations across the country are experiencing the same decline in the number of donors at a time when we know trustworthy information is so crucial to our collective well-being. So my hope is that our listeners can help us buck this trend. We know that many of you listening spend more time with WBUR than you do with some of the people you love most. We also know that there are so many good causes to support, but if we matter in your life at all, if you can't imagine a day or a week without WBUR and NPR, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, love to hear from you at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. That was our CEO, Margaret Lowe. The good news, we've made our goal thanks to 3,700 listeners, more than 3,700 listeners, who gave us more than $650,000. That's the fantastic news of the moment. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, The good news as well, or the continuing challenge, I guess I would say, is that the challenge continues. So that's what we're asking you uh, to help us with now by continuing to, if you haven't had a chance to, to make a contribution on this fundraiser, think about what WBUR means to you. Understand that you are the source of our independence, our largest share of the money. Give us a call, 1-800-909-9287 and WBUR.org, and we will stop this at 7 o'clock, right? I think we'll that's stop the, the fundraising. Yeah. Keep the news going, of course, because we're here for you every moment that you need us. And you know when you listen to WBUR, you can count on fact-based news, on editorially sound news. You can't get that everywhere else. And and you know when, when uh, you can't get that from a certain media outlet, that is not good for the community. The more that local um, uh, media entities fold, the weaker communities are, and there are studies that have shown this. So because you listen to WBUR, there's a reason for that. You appreciate, we know, the kind of independent journalism that you get, the fact-based journalism, and we hope you will still support it right now. We have indeed made our goal. We want to be transparent about that, but we're also going to be transparent about the fact that we need your dollars. So if you can still give $10 a month, $20 a month, $30 a month, we would so appreciate it because that's going to come right back out to you whenever you listen to WBUR. Your contribution helps us stay strong and helps us stay independent. We've heard uh, from listeners in this fundraiser, and that's always really gratifying. Here are a couple of things we heard just over the last uh, few hours. With all the misinformation in the world, the one place I can rely on for accuracy and transparency in the news is and always has been WBUR. We appreciate that. Here's here's another listener who said public radio, in-depth reporting, and journalism are vital for maintaining our democracy. And uh, one more. I wake up to your station every day. WBUR is like family. Your in-depth reporting and informative programming make my day better. So if that's important to you, if you agree with that, give us a call. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. You know, maybe you haven't thought about exactly why you listen to WBUR, what it means to you. We'll parse that out and put a dollar value on it. And join those people, 3,700 people, more than that, in fact, who have called in to make a pledge during this fund drive. We're so grateful to them for putting Putting us over the top. We would love to hear from you now if you haven't called yet. 1 800 909 9287 WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries. Brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spin-off. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. From CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. Two major social media platforms, Twitter and TikTok, are not having their best moments. Twitter under Elon Musk is, well, chaotic, while TikTok's links to China have drawn U.S. government scrutiny. And yet these two platforms would be hard to replace. Here's NPR's Bobby Allen. Drew Austin is a writer and urban planner in New York City. He's also something of a Twitter addict. Since Elon Musk acquired the platform in October, Austin says his Twitter feed has started to look different. To be honest, the biggest change I noticed right away when he took over was just that everybody was talking about Elon all the time and all the content that users were generating was Elon-oriented content, which I found really annoying. Yet Austin is sticking around, like most people are on Twitter. Outside researchers have found a small dip in usage since Musk took over, but it seems to be that no matter how much the service degrades, people will keep logging on. I've basically been using Twitter for 15 years at this point, and there's no way to quickly replace the followers and following that you accumulate over that amount of time. Another place where people have accumulated huge followings, TikTok. But its future is uncertain. The Biden administration has told TikTok if it doesn't separate from China-based ByteDance, it could be banned in the U.S. That has left many wondering, okay, so why can't a U.S. tech company just build its own version of TikTok? Well, it's also the answer to why everyone keeps logging onto Twitter, something called network effects. The idea is that you have to reach critical mass, and before you do that, it's not a super valuable service. But after you reach that, it's very hard to beat because it's very hard for others to replicate. That's Zolt Katona. He's a business professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who studies social media. Network effects is a phrase tossed around a lot by social media scholars like Zolt. It essentially means the more people join a platform, the better it gets for everyone. And a platform with really strong network effects is really hard to replace. And the reason this is called network effects, because usually this value is realized through some sort of networking with an actual link between two people. In the case of Twitter, a link between 330 million people and on TikTok, more than a billion people. On top of that, many on both platforms have found niche communities around food, music, politics, memes and whatever the Internet topic du jour is. Trying to replicate that takes more than a really good algorithm and a slick app. Writer and Twitter diehard Austin has tried several alternatives, but they don't feel the same. Twitter is still the default. It's the shelling point where everyone is. Even on platforms with tons of users, copying a service doesn't guarantee success. Instagram introduced a TikTok copycat feature called Reels, and it just hasn't taken off. Julian McGauley studies social media at the University of California, San Diego. He says when a big social media site tries to copy a competitor, it usually does so as a kind of side experiment, not the main service of the app. An obvious reason why Facebook or YouTube or whoever else doesn't implement it that way is because these like big incumbents are very reluctant to cannibalize what's already working well for them. 
Another way to think about the network effects of social media is that the popular ones are sort of too big to fail, at least for now. If anyone remembers MySpace, Friendster, Google Plus, or Vine, all social networks that had their moment only to eventually fade into obscurity. Now, Twitter and TikTok's network effects will not protect them forever. Social platforms rise and fall with internet fads, and experts say when a new app becomes all the craze and amasses a huge network, Twitter and TikTok might find themselves in the social media graveyard with MySpace and Friendster. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from BetterHelp. Committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington. WaterstoneLexington.com. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Wilman. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met with Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen today for talks in California. In welcoming Tsai to the U.S., he called Taiwan a good friend of America. The visit on U.S. soil has caused problems with China, which claims Taiwan as its territory. China has pledged a sharp but unspecified response to the meeting. But White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre says China should use caution. We have said there is no reason for uh, Beijing to turn this, tra- this transit uh, into, uh, into something that is is used as a pretext to overreact. Uh, we've been very clear about that. This is something, uh, when you look at this, the, the transit that the, the president of Taiwan is doing, this is something that's been part of uh, a long tradition. A spokesperson for former Vice President Mike Pence says Pence will not appeal a judge's ruling that orders him to testify before a grand jury in Washington, D.C. The jury is investigating the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. When Pence will testify is not clear, but former President Donald Trump could still appeal the judge's ruling. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a state visit to Warsaw today for talks with his Polish counterpart Andrzej Duda. As NPR's Julian Haida reports, it's Zelensky's third such visit abroad since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. President Zelensky passed through Poland during his state visits to the U.S. and U.K. in December and February, but this time Poland was the main destination. During a press conference, Zelensky said that the Poles were warm, friendly, and equally uncompromising as the Ukrainians were in this war with Russia. President Duda highlighted the fact that Poland is the third largest donor of weapons to Ukraine after the U.S. and the U.K., notably including some fighter jets. The two leaders held private talks about opening up their border more and how to best support Ukraine's NATO and EU membership bids. Duda also honored Zelensky with the highest state honor in Poland, the Order of the White Eagle. Julian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston City Councilor Kenzie Bach will be the next head to the Boston Housing Authority. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, Bach is a leading progressive voice on the council and a housing policy expert. Bach worked at the Housing Authority before she ran for city council. Now she'll return to the agency as its administrator. The chronically underfunded organization operates housing for about 9% of the city's population. Bach says the Boston Housing Authority is key to solving the city's housing crisis. So it's really the BHA that keeps our really low-income Bostonians here in the city with both the vouchers and the public housing portfolio. Um, And to me, that's just essential to um, the promise of a city for all. Bach will step down from her council seat at the end of the month and take over at the BHA in May. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
A driving school owner faces up to 20 years in prison for his role in a driver's license scheme at the Registry of Motor Vehicles in Brockton. Estavo Semedo pleaded guilty today to fraud. He admitted paying a road test examiner at the registry to falsely pass license applicants on their road tests. He'll be sentenced in August. Governor Maura Healey has convened an advisory council focusing on the state's Latino population. There are an estimated 85,000 Latinos in Massachusetts. WBR's Steve Brown tells us the 40-member board got down to work today. The council will advise the administration on strategies to expand economic opportunities for the state's growing Latino community and improve their overall well-being. Council Chair Josiane Martinez says the challenges include the fact that a disproportionate number of Latinos are living in poverty. Poverty and inequality is the root cause of many of the issues that happen after the unemployment, education, access to health care. So we want to focus on issues like housing, education, making sure the policies and the programs of the administration are going to be taken on, are implemented. Martinez says the state must still implement the issuance of driver's licenses for undocumented documented residents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Massachusetts is at the head of the class when it comes to advanced placement exams. The College Board reported today that Massachusetts has the highest percentage of high school seniors who scored a three or higher on the exams. That score indicates a subject is a student that is is able to complete introductory college-level work on a particular subject area. Nearly a third of Bay State seniors hit that mark. Red Sox notched a third straight loss in three games at uh, today at Fenway Park. The Pittsburgh Pirates won 4-1. to one. Just four games left for the Celtics' regular season. Tonight, the Celts and Toronto Raptors are at the Garden, 7.30 start time. In the forecast, damp into the evening and overnight tonight. Lows about 40 degrees. Tomorrow, it should be cloudy. You may still need the umbrella, but temperatures should inch up to about the mid-60s. 41 degrees now in Boston at 5.36. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local journalism is the backbone of vibrant, engaged local communities. When local journalism disappears, civic engagement goes with it. WBUR's journalism is strong, but we don't take it for granted, and we hope you won't either. Our future is not guaranteed. We need your monthly contribution to keep our journalism and our local communities strong. Give today at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And if you do give right now, you're going to be making WBUR even stronger because we are so happy to say that while we have reached our goal of 3,700 uh, 3, callers giving us more than 65 $650,000, many numbers here. We we are really grateful to those of you who will still call in and help us really get over the top because the way the budgets are right now, the way funding is right now, we need whatever padding that we can get, and that money is going to come right back out to you in terms of what you hear on WBUR, what you read at WBUR.org. And we have another special incentive to call right now, Anthony Brooks. Oh, yeah, we do. This umbrella. So if you give right now $10 a month, uh, we can use your monthly contribution to bring you more of the journalism you rely on. You get a very snazzy WB or umbrella. You know what it says on it, Lisa? What? We've got you covered. That is so Get good. it? WBR? It's an umbrella. An umbrella. Um, yep. Yeah, but I want to just come back to this really good news that you mentioned. We've reached our goal. So this is fantastic news. Thank 
big thanks to all of you who called 1-800-909-9287 or, Absolutely. Who, or who went to WBUR.org. 3,700 of you. Uh, we brought in more than $650,000. That is fantastic news. The fundraiser ends at 7, so from this point until 7, um, essentially it's extra for us in the bank account, which is important for the future because our need sort of continues. We have these fundraisers that kind of keep us up to date. It's really important that we hit these um, goals. We've done that. And now if you want, you, if you can think about it this way, we're sort of doing a down payment on the next fundraiser. I, probably I'm going to get yelled at for saying that, but it's something like that. Anyway, you, it, it's extra money in the bank. And as Lisa said, in this economy, and we can all use extra. So if you're listening right now and you haven't had a chance to uh, contribute right now, give us a call at 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. What it means uh, when you give monthly is that you become a sustainer and you automatically get into entered into win sweepstakes, uh, other gifts that we have to offer. And right now, if you can give us $10 a month, you will get a WBUR umbrella. And this is not by chance. You will absolutely get it. We will use your monthly contribution to bring you more of the journalism you rely on, and you will use it to... Stay covered when the weather is the way it is right now. So it's a nice black tote brand umbrella, 44-inch canopy, ergonomic handle, and you get WBUR. So please know that we have you covered. The umbrella has you covered with $10 a month as your gift at 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, all this week we've been asking you to think about how much you count on WBUR every day on the radio, online, with podcasts, all the ways you keep up with what's happening in Boston. Washington and the world. Think about the big story this week, the first time in history that a former president has been indicted. These are big stories, but also those smaller stories, those quirky stories like the snake uh, in the pilot seat. <laughs> I love that story, Lisa. I, know, are you? <laughs> I love the detail at the end. Like, by the way, they didn't, they never found the snake. Um, anyway. And are they still using the plane? That's what I want to know. <laughs> it all adds up. WBUR is worth a monthly contribution of 10 or $20 a month. So if you can, give us a call right now, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And if you were among the folks that helped us reach our goal this week, thank you very much for your help. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And know how much we rely on you for our operating budget. The vast majority of our funds come from you. So every single phone call is a meaningful one to us and consequential. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you once again. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, Committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. The country's third largest city will soon have a new mayor. My name is Brandon Johnson, and I can't wait to be sworn in as the next mayor of the greatest city in the world, Chicago. Yesterday, Chicago voters chose between two Democrats who each promised to lead the city in a different direction. In a tight election, Brandon Johnson, who was a little-known county commissioner, beat Paul Vallis, the former CEO of Chicago Public Schools. Mariah Wolfel of member station WBEZ in Chicago covered the race and joins us now. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Brandon Johnson will succeed Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who uh, lost her re-election bid during the first round of voting. Uh, And in this final round, Johnson won about 51 percent of the vote. How does he win over uh, the other half of people who did not vote for him? Yeah, it's the big question today. Um, Johnson started his speech acknowledging that very fact, saying he's going to be a mayor for everyone. He said to the people who didn't vote for him, he has a message that I care about you, I value you, I want to hear from you, I want to work with you. Um, He spent a fair bit of time last night offering an olive branch, though he didn't really name groups like the Chicago Police Union that backed his opponent. Um, He does say he wants to meet with police. And this will be a major task ahead for Johnson after a very divisive campaign focused on crime where he was accused repeatedly of wanting to defund the police department. Well, while he didn't get support from the police union, he did get support from other big unions, uh, particularly the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, What does that mean for public education in the city? Yeah, so Johnson thanked all the unions that champion him, including the Chicago Teachers Union, where he is an an organizer. Um, He said his win for the labor movement, uh, his win was the labor movement coming together with the civil rights movement. And he brought up in his speech that it happened on the day Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated 55 years ago. Today, we did not just acknowledge the assassination of a dreamer. Today, the dream is alive. And so today, we celebrate the revival and the resurrection of the city of Chicago. You know, he really doubled down on his progressive bona fides, essentially saying he'll be the working man's mayor. Um, You know, if there's one thing that I take away from the kind of mayor Johnson's trying to be, promising to be, is that he's centering wage workers in his vision for the future of the city. And that includes teachers. I think he envisions a fully funded public school system. Um, The cold reality, of course, is that there is not enough funding for public schools from the state or the city of Chicago, which faces a budget crunch. So Johnson really has a challenge ahead of him. Well, some of the biggest differences between Brandon Johnson and his opponent in the race, Paul Vallis, uh, were in their ideas to address crime. Uh, how does the mayor-elect plan to tackle that? So Johnson's plan consists first of hiring 200 more detectives in the police department to solve crime, which Chicago struggles with. He also wants to expand a program that uses mental health professionals instead of police to respond to 911 calls involving a mental health crisis to take some of the burden off of officers. He also wants to raise taxes on certain businesses uh, to fund addressing the root causes of violence. I've been speaking with Mariah Wolfel. Uh, She's the government and politics reporter at WBEZ in Chicago. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
A lot of national attention remains focused on the legal drama, legal dramas, of former President Donald Trump. But it was another quiet day at the White House. President Biden did not speak publicly at all today. He spent only a few minutes yesterday talking about artificial intelligence. The White House has worked hard to keep its distance from the wall-to-wall coverage of his predecessor's arraignment. Well, NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is at the White House and joins us to talk through Biden's strategy. Hey, Franco. Hey, Mary Louise. Hey, you've covered both these presidents, Biden and Trump. What kind of contrast have you seen these last few days? Yeah, after four years of covering the Trump presidency, I got to admit, you know, there were moments you know, over the last couple of days where I felt like I was back in time. I mean, the focus on Trump uh, has been so intense. On Monday, I was with President Biden on his trip to Minneapolis to talk about the economy when almost every question posed to him was about Trump. And the only thing that Biden said then was that he had faith in the system and he trusted the New York Police Department. And really since then, as kind of you noted, it's been almost zilch. Uh, At the White House yesterday, reporters were brought in for just about five minutes to hear Biden talk about artificial intelligence. He didn't respond to any shouted questions about Trump. And as you noted, there was nothing planned for today. And by 3 p.m., the White House had basically shut it down and said there wouldn't be any other updates for the day. Which is a little unusual. So what's going on here? Why, Why would President Biden cede so much of the spotlight to his predecessor? Well, the White House says that Biden is busy at work, but the White House and Democrats also see an opportunity here, you know, an opportunity to really illustrate the contrast between what Americans can continue to expect from Biden versus Trump if he were to come back. Yesterday, it was it was really wild. It was a brief but significant split screen where in the afternoon, President Biden was sitting at a table meeting with his advisors at the White House around the same time that sit- Trump was sitting at a defense table in New York, you know, a New York courtroom being arraigned. Um, I mean, part of the background dynamic here, of course, is that uh, Donald Trump is running for president again. President Biden, we believe, is going to run for re-election, but he hasn't actually officially declared one way or the other. How does that factor in here? I mean, it plays a role. I spoke with Doug Sosnick. He was an former advisor to President Bill Clinton. You know, he does say there is a difference between a president and a candidate. And he says there's a perception that a president governing is working for the people. But once a president becomes a candidate, there's another perception that he or she is focused on keeping their job. And Sosnick says right now the most important thing for Biden is to emphasize what he is doing for the American people. The single focus of this White House should be on telling that story and not going down rabbit holes, uh, for instance, like engaging on a day-to-day basis on a tit-for-tat about the travails and problems of, of former President Trump. And that was the message the White House delivered today when they were asked again about this. What about the message that we're hearing from Republicans? As you're reporting, what are you learning about how they may be gaming out this situation? Well, I mean, it helps Trump and it excites the Republican base in the short term, but it could hurt later on. I spoke with Republican strategist Ryan Williams about that tension, and here's what he said. Right now, the political world revolves around Donald Trump once again. It sucks the oxygen out of the room for any other Republican attempting to challenge him, and it allows Biden to just essentially focus on governing and on his agenda. 
You know, he says it doesn't necessarily, though, help Republican law at large. He says the focus is so much on the base and not the rest of the country. And whoever wins the Republican nomination is going to have to pick up some new voters. And this does not necessarily do that. That is NPR's veteran White House correspondent, Franco Ordonez. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Mary Louise. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. This is 90.9 WBUR. Overcast skies for the most part overnight tonight. Temperatures pretty much where they are right now, just about 40 degrees. Tomorrow should be damp, cloudy, with uh, temperatures reaching 66 degrees tops. Some sunshine for Friday with highs in the mid-50s. By the way, if the clouds clear up enough tonight, you should see April's full moon. It's called a pink moon, not because of its color. It's that the pink buds of the flocks and other flowers begin showing right around now. It's also known as the Paschal full moon, as it falls right before Easter Sunday. 41 degrees in Boston at 551. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News. When you support public media, you are supporting independent information. Might not always like it, but you'll know that it's delivered in your interest. The facts that citizens need so that we can do our jobs as citizens. Thanks for making WBUR possible. Yeah, we couldn't do our jobs without your support because you, in aggregate, make up the majority of our operating budget. We are so grateful to those of you who've called in to make this fund drive a success. We made our goal earlier, uh, probably about an hour, an hour and a half ago, and we are so thankful to those people, 3,700 listeners, who brought us over the top on that goal. So the reason that we're asking you right now to join them and make your call at one 800 UR.org, is that, as you know, we're in a moment where we are unsure financially of our future, as many people are. This is going on, many entities are. This is going on pretty much everywhere. So we know you uh, understand what it's like when we say that we can use every dollar that we can get. And every dollar that we get comes right back out to you in the form of news and information that is independent, that is editorially sound. And that makes your life better. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, that's right, Lisa. I mean, the big news tonight is that we made our goal. So many thanks to everyone who um, made a contribution. Um, We're going to keep going until 7 because that's what we committed to, whether or not we made the goal. So what this means is that we reached the goal. But uh, in this business, and particularly in this economy, the need continues. The need is always there. So if you haven't given yet, you can join those 3,700 folks, uh, your fellow citizens who helped us reach uh, that $650,000 goal and still go to the phone and dial 1-800-909-9287 or give at WBUR.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. You know, life is real. It's messy. 
We get all of the ups, all of the downs, the joys, the tragedies, the new information, the old stories, the laughs, the heartbreak. At WBUR, we bring all of that every day. And what we care about is being a part of your life. WBUR is better and we're all better when we're in that life together. When you decide to make that little bit of investment every month, you recognize that we are in this together and we're committed to being in it together today, tomorrow, next month, next year. If you're ready to be in this together with us a little bit every month, you can either call 1-800-909-9287 or you can go online at WBUR.org. And we're hoping right now you'll do one of those things. Either call us at 1-800-909-9287 or go online at WBUR.org. It's certainly true what Tiziana says there. Our community is stronger when its news outlets are stronger. So the stronger WBUR is the station that you've chosen to listen to out of all the stations that are available to you. The stronger we are, the more we can uphold our responsibility to bring you independent news, fact-based news um, that is not tainted by any kind of commercial interest, any kind of government interest. We're hoping that that's one of the reasons that you listen to us and that you understand how much we rely on your funding. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, and lots of local news sources, especially small regional newspapers, for example, are shutting down and uh, going dark, essentially. So local news is really important for the health of the local community. That's what WBUR represents. We, we hope that you think it's worth supporting. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. Right smack in the middle of a big slum in El Salvador stands a modern and new multi-story building. It is a state-of-the-art pet hospital in which El Salvador's president takes great pride. NPR's Ada Peralta reports on what that says about the controversial leader. We're not able to get into the hospital, but the government has put out a ton of publicity videos. They show meticulous exam rooms kitted with diagnostic machines, rehab units with bouncy balls, a courtyard with playground equipment, and of course, furry customers and their grateful owners. A 10 for Bukele, Miriam Martinez says. He's done what no other president has. President Nayib Bukele has made a name internationally because he launched a draconian crackdown against gangs in El Salvador. But he's also invested millions in public dollars in flashy projects. He bought hundreds of millions in Bitcoin and then sold a few of those Bitcoins to build Chivo Pets. And then he documented every step on social media. The government declined a request for an interview, and they didn't let us into the hospital. So I decided to walk around the neighborhood, and the contrast is hard to ignore. There are no courtyards here. The houses are hastily built. Delia, who asks that we only use her first name so she can speak freely, says when it rains, water gushes out of the drains and into her house. They've asked the government to fix it, and they won't. Um, 
About the pet hospital, she says, she has no opinion. But the truth is, she says, here, the humans have a ton of needs. She says sometimes you go to a hospital and there's no medicine. Other times you wait for hours only for doctors to tell you you have to seek private care. Maybe, she says, President Bukele should have used that money to care for us. I think it tells you that Bukele spends the government's money based on what he thinks or what polls tell him will make him look cooler. That is Hector Silva, a politician in the opposition. So in that sense, you have an influencer as a president. Silva says Bukele has jumped on bandwagons. He's invested hundreds of millions of public dollars on Bitcoin. When he was mayor of San Salvador, he got informal traders off the street by building what he said was the best market in Central America. But he built it in a place where there's no bus stops. Today, that market is nearly empty. And Silva, who serves on the city council, says Salvadorans are on the hook for $5 million in debt. He didn't look at the simplest technical things that he had to look for to make sure that a project like that would work. To Bukele, he says, the details don't matter. Instead, it's about the optics. Every project from a super jail to a library to this massive pet hospital gets a slick video on social media that makes Bukele look like a visionary. The money he spent building Chivo wouldn't be enough money to rebuild the national hospital, but you could definitely set up like a very nice clinic for children. This is a country, he says, where public hospitals struggle to get insulin. A project like that, says Silva, would be life-changing. Back at the pet hospital neighborhood, I find Elena de Rivas feeding stray cats. Humans already have hospitals, she says, so the pet hospital is welcome. She's an animal lover. She has dogs and birds. I ask her if she takes her pets to the government pet hospital, and she says no. Chivo Pets only takes Bitcoin, she says, and she doesn't know how to use it. Ada Peralta, NPR News, San Salvador. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Former Vice President Mike Pence says he will not appeal a ruling that directs him to testify in the Justice Department's investigation into the January 6th insurrection. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the exact timing of Pence's grand jury testimony remains unclear. Special Counsel Jack Smith wants to hear from Mike Pence as part of his investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Last month, Chief Judge Jeb Boasberg of the U.S. District Court in Washington turned away former President Donald Trump's arguments about executive privilege, but the chief judge put up some boundaries about the possible Pence testimony connected to Pence's role in presiding over the Senate on January 6, 2021. A spokesman now says Pence will not appeal that ruling, clearing the way for a grand jury to hear from him in the coming weeks. Investigators want to know more about Pence's contacts with Trump in the days leading up to the siege on the U.S. Capitol. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Brandon Johnson will be the next mayor of Chicago. The progressive county commissioner winning yesterday's election on a promise to address root causes of the city's gun violence. Remember station WBEZ in Chicago, Mariah Wolf was more. Johnson was criticized throughout his campaign for previous comments he made in which he said defunding the police is a political goal. He frequently denied that he intended to defund the police. Now that he's won, Johnson says he will take immediate action once he takes office to address violent crime. We want to prevent violence in the city of Chicago, so making sure that youth hiring doubles so that it's not just for summer uh, hiring, but it's year-round. Johnson says he intends to sit down with police officers who backed his tough-on-crime opponent, Paul Vallis. Johnson won with 51 percent of the vote. For NPR News, I'm Mariah Wolfel in Chicago. Officials in Glen Allen, Missouri, say a tornado that touched down just before dawn there this morning claimed at least five lives and left a still undetermined number of others hurt. The Sheriff's Department in Bollinger County saying the tornado touched or caused significant damage in the small rural community in southeastern Missouri, with crews still searching through the rubble there. Robin Miller lives outside Glen Allen and says her house was not damaged, but says power was out. It's bad. It's I mean, there's a lot of businesses destroyed, homes destroyed. Uh, they will not let, even though we live in Glen Allen, they will not let us go into the town of Glen Allen because first responders and everything are still cutting trees and all that stuff. Twister was spawned by a large storm system that could create additional tornadoes as it moves through the Midwest and the South today. Giant packet shipper FedEx says it intends to roll almost all of its ground, air, and other operations into one unit by next year as part of a $4 billion cost-cutting initiative. Under the plan, FedEx Express, FedEx Ground, FedEx Services, and other FedEx operating companies become a single entity. The company also plans to cut 25,000 jobs by May. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Three members of a family have been charged with smuggling Brazilian immigrants to work under harsh labor conditions in Woburn. Prosecutors say Chelb Mores charged immigrants $22,000 to come to the U.S. His brother and nephew are accused of then threatening the immigrants to pay off the money. The defendants own Todo Nebrasa and the Dog House Bar and Grill in Woburn. A coalition of doctors and medical experts wants the state to keep the mask mandate in place for hospitals and other health facilities. The state is doing away with the requirement in May. The Massachusetts Coalition for Health Equity says the decision is dangerous because COVID is still a major threat. 
State health officials say the challenge or the change aligns with the federal government guidance. And the Massachusetts Attorney General is calling on the Biden administration to increase access to birth control coverage. Andrea Campbell has joined more than 20 other attorneys general to make the request. Campbell says the White House should limit rules that allow employers to deny birth control coverage in health insurance plans for moral reasons. In sports, the Red Sox lost their third straight to the Pirates, 4-1 to one this afternoon. And overnight tonight, showers off and on. Temperatures about 40 degrees where they are right now, in fact. Tomorrow should be cloudy for the most part. Damp, showers off and on a lot warmer, up to 66 degrees. Some sunshine for Friday, highs in the mid-50s. It's 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Threats to democracy make an informed public critical to America's future. WBUR will always be free thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Give monthly to give real journalism a strong future. Here's how. By calling this number now, 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks, and we are in the final hour of our spring fundraiser. And we want to thank everyone who has given. Thank you. Individually, we would say your names if we could. Uh, If you haven't given, though, and you still can, we very much need your help. We are here without a paywall, and that is thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. But our future is not guaranteed. We really do need your help to sustain WBUR the way we sustain you. So please put a dollar value on that and make the call now if you haven't already. Yeah, and if you're just joining us, the big news is that we did make our goal, $650,000. We started this fundraiser a week ago. More than 360,000 of you have called in. Uh, to uh, make a contribution, and that allowed us to reach the goal. We're going to keep going until 7, because this, in this business, and particularly in this economy, the, the need is always there. We made the goal, this goal, but the need continues. So if you haven't given yet, there's still time for you to join the 370,000 fellow citizens who helped us reach that goal and give us a call, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and make a modest contribution. That's what we're asking, a monthly contribution of $10, $20 a month. When those all come together, it adds up to something really big, and that is the station that you depend on to deliver programming every day. And we depend so much on you, individual listeners. So again, thank you to everybody who has brought us over the top on this fun drive. If you haven't had a chance to call, we hope you understand how much your individual contribution means to us in terms of what we get. Uh, We get money from some companies when they can afford to support us. Fewer can right now than could before the pandemic. The amount of money we get from the government is really minuscule for WBUR. It's less than 4% of our budget. For NPR, it's about 1% or less than 1% of its annual budget comes from the government. And therefore, we rely on you, and that's kind of the way we like it, because we don't want to be beholden to the government or to corporate interests, commercial interests. We'd rather be beholden to you. So... If you like what you hear, and we're assuming you do, or else you wouldn't be listening, especially during a fundraiser, then we hope you will call right now. And by the way, if you can give $10 a month, we will use your contribution to bring you more news, and you will get a WBUR umbrella, a nice black tote out of it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center with Middleton Heights. 
the tale of a Filipino family pursuing the American dream, now through April 23rd, theumbrellaarts.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Today, a lot more people outside the state of Wisconsin are learning the name Janet Protosewitz. Yesterday, she won the most expensive judicial race in American history. It was for an open seat on Wisconsin's Supreme Court. Well, that result will give liberal justices a four to three majority on a court that is likely to hear challenges to a state abortion ban and to legislative district maps drawn by Republicans. The NPR Politics Podcast talked this through today. Here are correspondents Susan Davis, Kelsey Snell, and you'll hear first Tamara Keith. There was money pouring in from way outside of the state of Wisconsin. And the candidate who was aligned with the Democratic Party and Democratic values said openly that she was pro-choice, that she supported abortion rights, uh, that she would consider revisiting the state's congressional district lines and state district lines that have been highly controversial. That candidate, Janet Protasewicz, won, and not by a little bit. She won by more than 10 points, defeating Daniel Kelly, who was more aligned with Republicans, campaigned at GOP headquarters, and had connections to uh, former President Trump's uh, efforts to overturn the election results in 2020. We need to just stick with abortion as an issue in this race, I think, in particular, because it seemed to be such a central focus of the race. I read a fascinating data point that Protosewitz spent a third of her ad dollars focusing on the issue of abortion. You know, in 2022, it resonated with voters in a way that I think some voters weren't even anticipating, clearly remains an issue. I mean, Tam, are Democrats seeing this race as abortion is an issue that they should continue to campaign on and campaign on hard going into 2024? Let me just tell you, as I was in Wisconsin right before the election, I went and interviewed voters. Now, admittedly, I was interviewing voters at a student union at the University of Wisconsin. So, you reliably know, Democratic. Yeah. reliably, <laughs> yes, turnout was quite high in reliably democratic parts of the state. That's how you win. And what I heard again and again and again was that abortion was a very important motivating issue. And it was particularly motivating in this race because after the Dobbs decision, something called the 1849 law kicked in, which is a ban on abortion in the state. And that is inevitably going to come before the state Supreme Court. And it effectively outlaws abortion in the state right now. Yes. And that means that abortion is an incredibly live issue in the state of Wisconsin. And the reality is it's an incredibly live issue in many states in the United States. And even if people say their top issue is uh, the economy or they're not happy about the economy, they're not happy about this or that, the thing that they, it seems, care about most if they support abortion rights, the thing that makes them go to the polls is abortion. Sue, I want to ask you. Last fall, there was also a Senate race. It pitted um, a more progressive Democrat named Mandela Barnes against the incumbent Ron Johnson, who's a very conservative Republican. And Ron Johnson won. He won by about one point. It was a close race, but he won. And now, not even a full year later, you have Janet Protasewicz winning by more than 10 points. 
So what? What gives? I think structurally, there's a couple things. It's always harder to beat an incumbent than it is to win an open seat race, which is what Tuesday's race was. I think in a state like Wisconsin, you know, there's always probably going to be a race element to some of these uh, elections. Mandela Barnes was a black man. He ran uh, very hard to the left. Uh, and I think that that could have been a factor as well. So it's hard to say. One thing that I'm also curious about Wisconsin is it's got a lot of working class voters, right? Like this is a, a type of voter that had been in the Democratic Party for a long time, have increasingly been moving closer to the Donald Trump wing of the party, but also a group of voters that supports abortion rights, especially blue collar women. And if you're talking about a swing voter on an issue, there's a lot of blue collar women who do not want abortion bans. And in a state like Wisconsin, that could be a really potent political force. And I think that's something we're probably going to hear a lot more about going into 2024. Tim, I also wonder if you think that you see this race as possibly a new front in sort of the war of judicial elections. The Democratic Party hadn't really focused on judicial races with the same level of intensity that Republicans had, certainly in the pre-Dobbs era. And it seems like we might be entering a new chapter here for the Democratic Party. Now, not every state has judicial races. Uh, many uh, justices in many states are appointed, but there are states with elected judges. And uh, Wisconsin is one of them. And in the past, candidates that were aligned with Democrats for judicial positions in the state of Wisconsin didn't really like uh, shout that from the rooftops. They, you know, they just ran as like, I'm going to be a a carefully considered judge. And then something changed. Well, not just in Wisconsin. That's generally how judicial races have gone. In this case, it's very clear that the veil was off. <laughs> like everybody knew exactly where Janet Protasiewicz stood when they went to vote for her. And in a way, that means people are able to make more informed decisions. Uh, but also it, it, it does sort of change, I think, the way people view the judiciary. Though the fact is, from the Supreme Court on down, I think the way people view the judiciary has changed a lot in the last 20 to 25 years. That was NPR's Tamara Keith, Kelsey Snell, and Susan Davis. And for more, check out the NPR Politics Podcast. In the early years of the war in Afghanistan, the U.S. military relied heavily on an airbase in Uzbekistan that was known as K-2. K-2 is now known for another reason, toxic exposure. Veterans who served there have reported rare diseases or cancers, and many have died. Now they're demanding answers from the Pentagon, as NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. For 20 years now, Kim Brooks has been fighting a war she never signed up for. My husband, Lieutenant Colonel Timothy Brooks, was a 1989 West Point graduate. They married the next year and had four children by the time 9-11 happened. Tim deployed to a base called Kharshikhanabad, K-2, in Uzbekistan, near the Afghan border. Troops there mentioned irritating dust and strange chemicals seeping up through the ground. Tim came home, and soon after he started hearing rumors about uranium and other toxins. A year later, he had a seizure at a command ceremony as he was preparing to deploy to Iraq. At the hospital, the news wasn't good. Brain cancer. The doctor tells us that Tim has a stage 3 astrocytoma, and it's aggressive, and he has probably 11 months max to live. You know, we make it out to the parking lot, and Tim collapses on the ground in tears, sobbing. So he's six foot five, he's on the ground, and he's sobbing. Tim beat the prediction by a month. He died a year later, still on active duty with the Army. Of their four children, one went to West Point and later Iraq. 
Another is now a lawyer at the Yale Veterans Legal Services Clinic, which helped file a lawsuit this week. I'm the director of government affairs and a board member for the Stronghold Freedom Foundation. I would like to thank Senator Blumenthal for your uh, continued support and being here today. I would also like to thank the uh, CVLC for hosting us today and helping us in our journey. Steve Nelson with the Stronghold Freedom Foundation spoke at a press conference announcing the suit brought because the Pentagon has not answered a freedom of information request, a FOIA. This FOIA litigation seeks to force the government to provide a list of the toxins it discovered and documented at K2. This information is being inexplicably and shamefully withheld. The Pentagon referred NPR's query to the Department of Justice, which declined to comment on why this information isn't being released. 15,000 vets served at K2. Hundreds of them say they're sick, but they can't even tell doctors what to treat them for until they know what was contaminating the base. When I was there, some dudes came off a C-17 wearing moon suits, carrying Geiger counters, and I was in running shorts and a T-shirt. Mark Jackson served four combat tours. He spoke to me last week, and then he rushed himself to the emergency room when the sepsis in one of his elbows burst. He's got severe osteoporosis, anemia, and his thyroid failed and was removed. I have had surgery four times in the past six months, and I consider myself lucky because it's not cancer. Jackson's service was recognized with a Bronze Star Medal pinned on by Lloyd Austin, then a general, now Secretary of Defense. Jackson now wants Secretary Austin to recognize him again and all of the other K-2 veterans by releasing the information they need to survive. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. A worrier. That is how former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern described herself in a farewell speech today. Some might say the worst possible character trait to have as a politician, or the best, depending on how you cut it. Her message, you can be anxious, sensitive, and kind, and be an effective leader. And not only can you be here, you can lead just like me. Ardern stepped down as prime minister earlier this year, but remained a member of parliament. Now she says goodbye to the chamber and to politics. I've always believed this to be a place where you can make a difference. I leave knowing that to be true. Ardern joined the New Zealand House of Representatives 15 years ago when she was just 28 years old. At the time, she was its youngest member. In today's speech, she touted her wins and losses over the years, like the crises she oversaw, a domestic terror attack, a volcanic eruption, a pandemic. And she made a point to talk about one issue in particular. Climate change is a crisis. It is upon us. And so one of the very few things I will ask of this House on my departure is that you please take the politics out of climate change. Ardern also touched on her struggle to conceive a child. I'd not long experienced a failed IVF round when I became leader of the Labour Party. I thought that I'd found myself on a path that meant I wouldn't be a mother. Rather than process that, I campaigned to become Prime Minister. (laughs) A rather good distraction as far as they go. Imagine my surprise when a couple of months later I discovered I was pregnant. Ardern made history when she brought baby Neve to the UN General Assembly three months after birth. So it was only fitting that Neve, who is now four years old, was in the public galleries watching and listening to her mom's farewell to politics. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Checking business news today, the Dow rose a quarter of a percent, S&P lost a quarter of a percent, the Nasdaq gave up ground too, but even more, it fell a full percent. That's the third loss in three days. This is 90.9 WBUR, the forecast overnight tonight. If it's clear enough, you might be able to see the full moon tonight. Could have showers off and on, temperatures just about 40 degrees where they are right now. And for tomorrow, a different story. Should still be cloudy. You may still need the umbrella, but temperatures should inch up to the mid-60s. This is WBUR. It's four, uh, made that 621. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I believe real journalism is essential to our daily life and our collective future. I believe public radio is one of the last great hopes for journalism in our country. If you believe these things too, then I'm asking you to start a monthly contribution to WBUR. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, maybe just 10 to $15 a month. It'll go a long way to protect one of life's essentials. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We want to tell you we are in the final 40 minutes of our spring fund drive. Thanks to everybody who has given, who helped us make the goal. If you have not yet given and you can, we still very much need your help because please remember, these are very uncertain times. How could we forget that? We are here for you without a paywall. And that's thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Our future, though, is not guaranteed, so we really do need your help to sustain WBUR the way we sustain you. There are lots of people who are still calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving online at WBUR.org, and we are very grateful for that. So thank you once again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks. Hey, Lisa. Yeah, 3,700 3, listeners have given so far during this fundraiser. They put us over our, our goal line. We're very grateful to them. We raised uh, more than $650,000. So we've exceeded the goal. We're going for another 30 or 40 minutes or so. Um, this is great to be in this position where we can actually push beyond our goal because, as Lisa mentioned, these are uncertain times uh, economically, uh, challenging times uh, even for public radio. So we are immensely grateful for the support that rolled in this week, and we want to encourage you to keep it coming. If you haven't had a chance to join those 3,700 other listeners, then give us a call right now, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. This is Ira Glass of This American Life from Public Radio International. One of the things that makes public radio different is the way that it's funded. We have the most idealistic system, the fairest system, the best system in the world. That is, those of us who listen all the time, those of us who like the kinds of stories and shows and analysis and music and authors that are on this radio station every day, those of us who like that kind of thing, we all pitch in together, and that's how it stays on the air. Public radio equals public support. If you can help out, give a call. And you can do that right now, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Just about 36 minutes left to go before the fundraiser is entirely over. We would love to hear from you before that time if you haven't called as yet. By the way, if you have, thank you so much for making this a successful fund drive. Uh, There are a couple people who left messages when they called in and gave their support to WBUR. One said, thanks to WBUR, I'm grateful to be able to simply turn on the radio and find the truth 
expertly delivered. Hmm. Another person said, I depend on WBUR to remain an informed citizen and voter. And you know, when you think about it, if, if more than just that listener felt that way, that's a victory for us because when we have an informed citizenry, we have smarter, uh, smarter citizenry and more informed voters. And what more could we want? I mean, you rely on us for independent journalism and independent journalism is the foundation of democracy. So what you're doing is you're supporting this strong local news station that is editorially independent and fact-based and intent on staying that way, but can only stay on that way with your continued support. 1-800-909-9287 or pledge online at WBUR.org. And the fact that we reached our goal, it's a testament about the good that we can do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving something modest uh, every month, uh, a contribution that creates the stories, the conversations, that uh, bring you WBUR and everything that we cover, it all adds up to creating something bigger in your world. So now is the time. You can still do it. You can still make a tax-deductible monthly contribution to WBUR. Go to WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. There are about 35 minutes left on the clock to do it, to to join this spring uh, fundraiser, join the 3,700 other listeners who helped us reach our goal to help us remain strong for the future. And uh, if you can uh, swing at $10 a month, if you're wondering how much to give, if you can do $10 a month, become a sustainer, you will get as our thanks a great black tote brand umbrella, 44-inch canopy, ergonomic handle, and it says, we've got you covered. W-B-U-R. You get it. (laughs) So you get it now when you give $10 a month, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Want to tell you, yes, we made our fun drive. We made the goal um, a little bit earlier during All Things Considered, and we're so grateful. If you haven't called, we would surely love it if you would, because we are stronger with your dollars. The more you can contribute to WBUR in a way that is comfortable for you, affordable for you, the stronger WBUR is going to be and the more you get out of it. So it's a really transparent enterprise. Please make the call right now. Keep us strong. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Again, we're so grateful to everyone who contributes. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. North Carolina politics got a big shakeup today. A longtime Democratic member of the State House of Representatives announced that she is becoming a Republican. Her switch gives the GOP supermajorities in both chambers of the legislature, allowing the party to override vetoes of Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. And it unleashed a firestorm of criticism from Democrats who called for her to resign. Steve Harrison from member station WFAE has this report. Trisha Cotham had been one of the most well-known Democratic politicians in Mecklenburg County, home to Charlotte, the state's largest city. But on Wednesday morning, Cotham was at the headquarters of the North Carolina Republican Party in Raleigh. In announcing her defection, she blasted other Democrats as close-minded bullies. She said that when she worked with Republicans earlier this year, I was considered a traitor, I was told, a spy. Please don't come to caucus. 
you'll tell everything we know. That is a terrible mentality, and that's just wrong. Cotham is joining a Republican Party that's firmly entrenched in power in North Carolina with no signs of losing it. While Democrats in last year's midterm election did better than expected nationally, in North Carolina, Republicans won a U.S. Senate seat, added to their majority in the state legislature, and swept statewide judicial races. And with Cotham's move, North Carolina Republicans have even more power. Democratic State Party Chair Anderson Clayton led a rally after the news broke. Representative Cotham's decision to switch parties is a deceit of the highest order. It is a betrayal to the people of Mecklenburg County. Reproductive freedoms are on the line. Our public schools are on the line. LGBTQ rights are on the line. Voting rights are on the line. The GOP has enough members in the legislature to override Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's vetoes. That means they could place new limits on abortion, which is now legal at 20 weeks. North Carolina is a destination for many women across the South, where states have severely restricted abortions in the past year. Ten years ago, Cotham stunned lawmakers when she announced on the House floor that she had previously had an abortion for medical reasons and is now downplaying what her party switch might mean for abortion access in the state. I believe women are much more. We're business owners. We help create economies. We raise families. We carry it all. And so to always be tried just to that tragic, hard topic is wrong. When Cotham campaigned last fall, she ran on LGBT and abortion rights in a blue district that President Biden won easily. Now the state's House Democratic leader called on Cotham to resign, and one advocacy group called her Turncoat Tricia. For NPR News, I'm Steve Harrison in Raleigh. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C.